I had intended to move on in our study of Romans chapter 13 and the Christian understanding of government, but there were a couple of reasons in my mind and in my thinking that I'll suspend that for a couple of weeks because I want, first of all, to have all of our other 75 brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the UK trip to be back for what I trust will be a very wonderful study in understanding government from Romans chapter 13. And so I want to suspend that until they return, until we can get some momentum going for that. And secondly, I thought throughout this week of a number of things that have been on my heart, some things that have come through to me by way of information and by way of current events that compel me to begin a two-part series, the first this morning and then next Lord's Day, entitled The Hidden Hand of Providence. The Hidden Hand of Providence. There are five things that came into my life and into our lives this week, some of them which you are very well aware and some of them you are not. The first is I received a call this week from Dr. Bruce Bickle. Do you remember Bruce? A couple of years ago he was a part of a five-week study for us on the five solas of the Reformation, and if you remember he gave the fifth and final sola, Soli Deo Gloria. You remember Bruce, Dr. Bickerel, as a man who hails currently from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And you remember he was one of those who went through and graduated near, I think, the top of his class from the Naval Academy. And he went immediately, as his commission took him, to Vietnam in the late 60s, early 70s. You remember he was a Navy pilot. And he was shot down in Vietnam, and through the whole process of his tour of duty there and all that the Lord took him through, one of the things that he was able to do was to start a Vietnamese orphanage. And of course, after he was shot down and unable to be involved in seeing that ministry grow and flourish, for which also a Christian church uh, was started near that orphanage. He came back to the United States to recuperate from his various injuries. In fact, even from the time he had been with us until now, he told me this week he's had a couple of more surgeries, one on his right wrist and one again on his back because of the continuing complications of his having been shot down. He continues to work through those physical issues of his life. And he called me this week to check on me and He said to me, I have great news. I said, what is that? He said, well, he said, in the providence of God, he said, I was asked to come back to the Naval Academy last week, and I was asked to do a memorial chapel for all of the men who died in the Vietnamese War who were a part of my graduating class. And I was asked to do a memorial service for all of those fallen comrades. I said, Bruce, how many would that be? 
And he said, 188. And he said, I did that memorial service. And he said, one of the men came up to me who was, I think he said, in the suite of rooms that they had at the Naval Academy for which they were all roommates. He said, my own personal roommates, the two men who were directly in my room, were killed in Vietnam. He said, this particular man came up to me and uh, reintroduced himself to me after not having contact with him for many years. And he said, that particular man is now the number two in command at NATO. And he said, Bruce, I want you to know that I so appreciated this memorial service because just a few years ago, I myself became a Christian. And so as they began to talk, this particular man asked Bruce, do you know what has come of this orphanage and this church that I became aware of that you had started when you had your tour of duty in Vietnam? And Bruce said, I really don't. It has been, of course classified that we have not been able to get back into that area for many, many years because, of course, as you know, it fell into communist hands. And he said, so I really, really don't know. But he said, I would really, really like to know. And he said, to my amazement, this number two man in NATO said, well, believe it or not, I am going to be going to Vietnam soon, and I want you to go with me. And he said, I am going to arrange for you to go to that orphanage. And he said, Lance, I can't tell you how excited I am to know that the Lord used me as an instrument to start that orphanage, and now 40 years later, I'm going to have the opportunity to go there and to check and see how the Lord has worked through things there after that 40-year absence. He was very, very excited. And I thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about Bruce and his wonderful ministry and what the Lord did to use him in that. And I said to myself, that is the hidden hand of providence. Secondly, as you know, our 75 church family members are in the United Kingdom ministering uh, underneath the ministry of Todd Murray. In fact, when I went to the airport on Friday to see them off, they surprised Todd with 75 t-shirts that had on the back a picture of England, a picture of Olney, and then around the circle said the Todd Murray Singers and Players. And so we prayed together and we sent them off. But Todd had told me a story, told our elders a story last Thursday that again, that I think again supports this idea of the hidden hand of providence. Mike and Patsy Mitchell and their daughter, Laura, were all endeavoring to go as a part of that contingent of 75. And as the Lord would have it, because of circumstances I don't have time to get into, Uh, Their passports were not arriving in the time that they assumed that they would. And so they had to make a decision, and they made a decision to go through the night driving to New Orleans, Louisiana, where this particular region of our country has those passports and will send those out from that regional office. And they didn't have the time to get them before they were supposed to board that plane. And so they had to drive all night in order to receive those passports and... uh, Needless to say, it was a very, very delicate time for which they didn't know exactly where to go and what to do, and the Lord was gracious in allowing them to receive those passports at the absolute last moment. 
But in the midst of that, because of the fact that they were alerting Todd about these passports, Todd was going in and checking on Laura's ticket for the plane. And he had an email that said in the subject heading, confirmation numbers. But in the body of the email, it only gave the reservation numbers and the travel agent that we used to book all of the flights had inadvertently failed to pay for those last five tickets. And because they had reservation numbers and yet failed to pay for it within 48 hours, those reservations were canceled. But had Todd not heard from the Mitchells about Laura's passport situation, their passport situation, we would have never known about those five, and those five would have shown up to go along with the other 70, and they would not have been ticketed for that flight. And so through the rest of that evening and the next day, Todd scurried to try to get those five individuals, a couple teenagers, including Laura, and uh, we were able to see the Lord work through that. That's example number two of the hidden providence of God. Number three, of course, my son Logan and all that he has struggled with over the last month and a half with this pseudotumor cerebri and uh, this reaction to the, to the oral medication for the acne. And we've seen the Lord in very, very wonderful providential ways, although hidden most of the time, attempting to figure out all that the Lord is doing as a result of afflicting him and what we're learning as a result of it. He and his mother and I went to an eye examination on Wednesday and had lunch together on Wednesday and talked a lot about the providence of God. Number four, I received a call yesterday morning from one of our other pastors telling me that he'd received a call from Mike and Vicki Butler, Mike and Vicki Butler of our church, our church family, members here. They live in Conway. Apparently, the oldest of their three children, two daughters and a son, the oldest daughter, Christy, 35 years old, married to Steve, Steve Ward. They have three children, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And those three little babies are cared for during the day by Vicki Butler, Christy's mother, Mike's wife, while she works as a respiratory therapist. And apparently she had been complaining this week of some unusual tiredness, but not alarmingly so. And she said to her husband, Steve, I think on Saturday I'd like to sleep in a little bit. Would you allow me to do that? And of course he said yes, and he said, I'll take care of the kids, these three little ones. And uh, yesterday morning he went in about 10.30 to check on her, and she was dead in her bed. The cause is as yet unknown. The hidden hand of providence. I guess you could say in one sense why, which is of course what many people say, why, Lord, would you take a 35-year-old mother of three little children, four, three, and one? And yet when I talked to Mike this morning on the phone, he said through tears... Lance, I can honestly tell you that my theology works. He said, I'm not questioning, nor is Vicki, two things, the timing 
of God's will and the perfection of God's will. He said, Vicki has taken on, of course, a large role in the parenting and the care for these little ones as Christy has worked as a respiratory therapist and now Vicki is going to take on, obviously, a very larger role. And he said, thank you for those who have already reached out to us and those who will yet reach out. The Conway Care Group and Pastor Ray and his wife Brenda went there last night. I know Walter and Suzanne Hill and some others have already begun ministering to them. It's difficult when you have to put your own parents into the grave and even much more difficult when parents have to put their own children in the grave. Right now, in that family, the Lord in His hidden providence is doing things that is not necessarily what we would consider the normal things. Vicki buried her father some three weeks ago, and Mike and Vicki are caring for Mike's mother who is aged and has Alzheimer's and is living with them in their home. And so there are great challenges there to say nothing of what our country has experienced in these tumultuous days with regard to the massacre at Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia. That, of course, has made national and international news in terms of what all of us would wonder is the hidden providence of God, the hidden hand of God. If you have been watching the news at all, you have been seeing, especially in the very early hours, the blame game. Why did this occur and who is to blame? In fact, I was reading in Al Mohler's blog, his blog on this very thing, playing the blame game. Who is to blame for Blacksburg? He says, in the aftermath of disaster, a phenomenon called the blame game often soon rears its head. The impulse to assign moral responsibility is normal, even healthy, but the game often plays itself out in irrational ways. Just observe much of the media coverage surrounding the Virginia Tech killer and his murderous slaughter. Some quickly move to assign blame to the university's administration and police department. There will no doubt be a thorough review of both in the future, but they are not to blame for the killings. We must blame the killer. Other commentators and theorists attempted to place the blame on society as a whole, on the young man's parents, or on his generation. The theorists of the therapeutic culture have rushed to argue that a stigma against mentally ill persons drives some to heinous acts of violence and thus this stigma is to blame. Still others, Dr. Moeller says, try to blame guns, grades, or any number of other factors, anything and anyone but the murderer. Writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Gary Laverne of the University of Texas at Austin argues that this has to stop. Laverne is author of A Sniper in the Tower, colon, The Charles Whitman Murders, a recounting of the infamous tower shootings at his university, the University of Texas at Austin in 1966. As Laverne explains, I researched and wrote A Sniper in the Tower from 1995 through 1997. The university press trade paperback is in its 
fifth printing, and the tragedy at Virginia Tech will most likely push it into a sixth. One reason the story of this crew-cut, blonde, blue-eyed, all-American boy will not go away is that it encompasses many of the salient psychological and criminal justice issues we debate today. Like the Tower tragedy, the Virginia Tech incident will see passionate discussion about whether or not violence is the result of organic disease. Is the killer's brain different from ours? Did drugs influence his actions? Was he taught to kill by the military, by his father? Did his situation push him to do what he did? Why wasn't this young man helped? Dr. Laverne's conclusion. Before we identify and learn the lessons of Blacksburg, we must begin with the obvious. More than four dozen innocent people were gunned down by a murderer who is completely responsible for what happened. No one died for lack of text messages or an alarm system. They died of gunshot wounds. While we painfully learn our lessons, we must not treat each other as if we are responsible for the deaths that occurred. We must come together and be respectful and kind. This is not a time for us to torture ourselves or to seek comfort by finding someone to blame. Maybe as a result of the tragedy, we will figure out how to more effectively use email and text messages as emergency tools for warning large populations. We may come up with a plan that successfully clears a large area with a population density of a mid-sized city in less than two hours. Maybe universities will find a way to install surveillance cameras and convince students and faculty members that they are being monitored for their own safety and not for gathering domestic intelligence. All those steps might be helpful in avoiding and reducing the carnage of any future incidents. But as long as we value living in a free society, we will be vulnerable to those who do harm because they want to and know how to do it. Dr. Moeller ends by saying, this is an important argument and a much-needed assertion of moral clarity. We dare not make this clear-headed killer into yet another victim. He's right. As I thought about these five things that I have given to you, some out of my own life, some out of our own church's life, and some out of our country's life, I began to think again about this concept of the hidden hand of providence. Because so often people are going to say, just as this article suggests and just as the news media reports suggest, why and who's to blame? Those are two very common questions. Why? Why would God allow this? Why does someone do this? And who's to blame? Is it just this person? Is it someone else? Is it our society? Is it drugs? Is it the brain? What is it? And I would suggest to you that the answer is, it is God. Not that God would be blamed, Certainly not for evil that is perpetrated on the world as though he's the author of it. But in the midst of what is occurring in our world, including Virginia Tech, 
and including other examples, whether they can be clearly seen or not, is the hidden hand of providence. You say, well, what would be the hidden hand of providence with regard to Blacksburg, Virginia and the mowing down of over 30 people? Well, listen to this. And this is, of course, not all of the answer, but it is at least some of the answer. There is a man who is well known to me, Dr. Ernie Baker, who is a professor at the Master's College in the area of biblical counseling, and this is what he says, Dear brother, responding to another brother friend of mine, he says, I just want to confirm that there is a large evangelical presence on Virginia Tech campus. I ministered in that town for 14 years as pastor of Harvest Baptist Church. This is the church that started when Dr. Henry Morris was there and he wrote his seminal work on scientific creation, the Genesis Flood. He was a professor there at Virginia Tech. It met first in the basement of his home. There are over 30 Christian campus organizations. He says, I am in the process of trying to form a group of certified biblical counselors to be in town next week, we hope. Most students went home this week, so the campus organizations are now strategizing how to best minister this coming week. Also, Dr. Bob Provost, you know Bob, he came and ministered in one of our Mission Week contexts. Bob Provost of Slavic Gospel Association, by God's providence, was already scheduled to be in town to speak at my former church this weekend. The word is slowly getting out that the organization that oversaw the relief efforts of the Beslan school tragedy in Russia, which was, of course, Slavic Gospel Association, is going to be in town. And he says, thanks again for your ministry and please pray for open doors and wisdom. We've been praying for revival on that campus for years. Another graduate of the Master's Seminary, good friend of mine, Mark Vaughn, writes this, Please be praying as we work toward a Sunday evening outreach at Virginia Tech. I pastor Calvary Memorial Church in Roanoke, Virginia, 45 minutes from Virginia Tech. My wife and I are VT graduates, and I graduated from the Master's Seminary in 1999. I'm partnering with a few churches and campus ministries in Blacksburg to be on campus Sunday afternoon and evening, that is today. My parents and mother-in-law work at Virginia Tech and have helped through this also. We will be handing out materials that have been donated largely by Grace to You, Grace Books International, Grace Community Church, and Desiring God Ministries. Additionally, John MacArthur has recorded a special message entitled Life or Death Questions from the Virginia Tech Tragedy, which also will be distributed. He says, We trust the Lord to use our presence to allow us to talk or pray with students who are grieving, fearful, or in need. He says, The main thing is to show the love of Christ and being ready to evangelize, encourage, weep, pray, whatever, and place biblical materials in their hands. We may not know the final outcome of our efforts in this life. Many will leave in three weeks when the semester ends. We've also received a monetary pledge toward our outreach that will also allow us to provide some refreshments. He says, another TMS alumnus, Tim Martin, and the church he pastors, Grace Church of Roanoke, have pledged their commitment to help, as have, as have other churches. He says, follow-up will continue beyond Sunday's outreach 
but the largest commitment of our energies at this point is Sunday when students should be returning to campus to prepare for classes Monday. Please pray for the details to run smoothly and for God to prepare the hearts of the students we'll reach. Pray as well for the saints reaching out that we'll have compassion and love as we serve the truth. The same is true of the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. They are inviting any NANC certified counselors to come and help the hurting and confused, and they're setting up a ministry venue in which they will take opportunities to counsel for anyone who comes and for anyone who asks for that counsel. Just three examples, even one from our own church. Pastor Tim Sin has a very good friend that he went to Clemson University with who is one of the campus ministers at Virginia Tech. The hidden hand of providence. People praying for revival on that campus and God doing something obviously and allowing what we trust might be the very answers to those prayers in a way that none of us would have ever conceived. But that's the hidden hand of providence. This is an amazing thing in the time in which we live that we would wonder about what God is doing. This particular issue of the providence of God and what providence means for Christians as opposed to what non-Christians say about God and what He would allow and would blame Him and would charge Him and would ridicule Him that if indeed there is a God, why would He allow such such a thing as though God is only obligated to allow good things to happen to people in the world and never bad things. In fact, this week as I was driving back to the church after a lunchtime and I was able to catch the national audio feed for the convocation service that happened, as you know, the next day after the massacre. And they invited, after President Bush spoke and the governor of Virginia, four leading religious persons from the Virginia Tech campus, a Muslim, a Buddhist, someone from the Jewish religion, and then a Lutheran. And as I listened to their four or five minutes apiece, I was, of course, grieved to hear that really none of them articulated the truth. And even the Buddhist priestess mentioned very much something like this. In a time like this, we're comforted to know that we must look within for the answers. And then she asked for a moment of silence so that she said we could all comprehend fully what has happened yesterday and she gave approximately 7 to 10 seconds for doing so. I don't know about you, but I don't think 7 to 10 seconds is going to allow anyone to comprehend all that has happened in the Virginia Tech tragedy, certainly not. But I praise God that the hidden hand of providence is on a campus like that, in a country like ours, in a world that He has created. And surely James Montgomery Boyce is right when he said, there is probably no point at which the Christian doctrine of God comes more into conflict with contemporary worldviews than in the matter of God's providence. What is God's providence? 
Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about a definition of God's providence. And then I want to introduce a biblical basis for that providence, at least introduce it with a couple of passages. And then next Lord's Day, I want to give you seven ways in which God's providence is manifested according to the Scripture. And then we'll finish off with some more points. But I want this morning to define providence. We need to know what it is. Because if you're talking about a, a sick child, if you're talking about a mother who has lost her life, leaving three little ones behind, if you're talking about a scenario with passports and a music ministry, if you're talking about a man who is attempting to find out what in God's providence has occurred with an orphanage that he started 40 years ago, or if you're talking about a horrific gunning down of over 30 people, the largest massacre on any college campus in the history of this country, you're going to have to know what God is doing in His providence. And you may not know in totality, none of us will, but at least we have to know in part, who is this God who allows such things? And what is He doing in His providential care? Here's what we want to do. I want to define it for you this morning. And I should go maybe in terms of defining what theologians across the spectrum have done over the years and defining it, and probably nowhere better than this, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, here's what it says about providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That is a great, succinct definition. Probably one of the best ever penned. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Everything. Everything in our world is under the purview of the providential hand of God. And because we can't see at every turn what that providence might mean... That's why we call it the hidden hand of providence. The Scriptures very clearly teach that all things outside of God owe not merely their original creation, but their continued existence with all of their properties and all of their powers to the will of God. God is a God of providence. Louis Burkhoff says this, very helpful. Providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Everything. You see, if you think that what happened on that campus was something outside the purview, the plan, the purpose, the providence of God, you don't understand the God of the Bible. And there, of course, are multitudes of people who want to lay blame on the why and the who when the answer is ultimately God. Ultimately God. He allowed this to occur. He planned that this would occur. He orchestrated, He decreed the very occurrence of this event 
for purposes that are far beyond what we could conceive, but it's not so much that we would say God didn't have anything to do with this at all. And you know, there are pulpits across this land that will be saying that very thing this morning. That God didn't have anything to do with this. Nothing. There will even be some open theists in their pulpits who will say God didn't even know it was going to happen until it did. But you need to know differently. You need to know that this is the hand of God even when it's hidden so that when God allows what He allows, does what He does, He's not caught by surprise and He has a plan for good for all the believers who might be affected and He has a plan for punishment for those who perpetrated such a crime. Listen to J.I. Packer. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the Creator, according to His own will, A keeps all creatures in being, B, involves himself in all events, and C, directs all things to their appointed end. God is completely in charge of His world. His hand may be hidden, but His rule is absolute. Listen to R.C. Sproul. What God creates, He also sustains. The universe is not only dependent upon God for its origin, it depends upon God for its continuity of existence. The universe can neither exist nor operate by its own power. God upholds all things by His power. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. The central point of the doctrine of providence is the stress on God's government of the universe. He rules His creation with absolute sovereignty and authority. He governs everything that comes to pass from the greatest to the least. Nothing ever happens beyond the scope of His sovereign providential government. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. He raises up kingdoms and brings them down. He numbers the hairs on our head and the days of our life." That's the doctrine of providence, my friends. And it teaches that Christians, we who love the Lord, that we are never out of His grip. What happens in this world is never as a result of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that that happens in this world, and especially all of those things that happen to us as believers is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust and obey and rejoice, knowing that all things work together for good. When I talked to Mike Butler on the phone this morning, even through tears, which are very natural because of the loss of your own precious daughter, he said, Lance, I love God. And I believe that God is working His work even if I cannot readily see it. We'll see it in time. We'll trust the Lord. And we had a sweet, precious time of prayer together. He's a man who's ready to learn. In fact, he said this. 
He said, I believe that God is doing this for two reasons. One, to glorify Himself. And number two, to make us more Christ-like. And he said, I can easily affirm the first. The second, I'm sure, will come to me in hard ways in the days to come. But I want to be more Christ-like. He understands God's providence. Now, I can only touch the surface this morning, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Because I want you to see in very, very brief terms, and then we'll define it more carefully and with more passages next time, this idea of God's providence. It actually comes as we work toward defining it, and then next time look at all of the biblical bases behind it, at least as much as we would have time for, even the word providence itself has as its root the word provide, right? So that if you said it in English rather awkwardly, you would say God's providence, God's providence. He's providing what we need. And in Genesis 22, we see the wonderful, maybe even the greatest Old Testament affirmation of it. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now there are a couple of things that are very interesting to me that I would say are below the surface, not in the text, but certainly I think very easy implications of the text. One of those is, of course, it just matter-of-factly says that God tells him to take his son whom he loves and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which God would tell him. Now what would be your response if that's what God told you to do? I mean it's almost as though there's not even a hint in the text of any visceral or emotional response but I'm sure it must have been there. You remember, Isaac was the very son of whom God said, I will bless you and through you the very nations of the world. And they would be like like sand in the seashore. They would be like stars in the sky. You won't be able to count all of of the people who are going to be blessed through your son Isaac. Don't you assume that Abraham might have been tempted to say, and now you want me to go kill him? And then notice verse 4, on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It was a three-day journey. Don't you imagine that in his heart he was contemplating all of these things for three full days? In other words, it wasn't immediate. He had a lot of time to ponder these things, a lot of time to meditate upon these things. Look at verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father! 
And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide. And that very word is the word in which theologians come up with that very term, God's providence. God's providence. God will provide. That was Abraham's faith. In fact, if you look at the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, that great hall of faith, Abraham had such confidence in God and his promises, and he committed himself to the very promises of God, and it reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham believed God to the extent that even if Isaac had been killed by Abraham, Abraham, according to the writer of the Hebrews, said, I believe that God would raise him from the dead. He surely believed in God's providence. God would provide. He's going to provide for himself a lamb. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Wasn't that God didn't know what he was going to do? He wanted Abraham to know. He wanted Abraham to go through the entire experience even when the knife blade was coming down just before it impelled his own son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Alternate translation, the Lord will see. Because God's providence means that God sees. He perceives. He plans. There's thought, forethought, planning, seeing, seeing ahead. As it is to this day, that mount, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, or it shall be seen, or will be seen. Charles Hodge says this, To suppose that anything is too great to be comprehended in his control, or anything so minute as to escape his notice, or that the infinitude of particulars can distract his attention is to forget that God is infinite. See, God has it all in control. Everything. From the greatest to the least particular. Lorraine Bettner, it is almost universally admitted that God determines when, where, and under what circumstances each individual of our race shall be born, live, and die, whether it shall be male or female, white or black, wise or foolish, God is no less sovereign in the distribution of His favors. He does what He will with His own. 
To some he gives riches, to others honor, to others health, to others certain talents for music, oratory, art, finance, statesmanship, etc. Others are poor, unknown, born in dishonor, the victims of disease, and live lives of wretchedness. Some are placed in Christian lands where they receive all the benefits of the gospel. Others live and die in the darkness of heathenism. Some are brought through faith unto salvation. Others are left to perish in unbelief. And to a very large extent, these external things, which are not the result of individual choice, decide the person's life course and eternal destiny. Both Scripture and everyday experience teach us that God gives to some what He withholds from others. If it be asked why He does this or why He does not save all, the only available answer is found in the words of the Lord Jesus, Yea, Father, For so it was well-pleasing in thy sight. Why was it that it was on the Virginia Tech campus? Could have been the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Could have been the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Could have been any number of other places. Why there? And you see, the world wants to say, why and who's to blame? I want to know. And they say it in such a way that it is perceived, no doubt, by them, even unconsciously so, that everything in this world is answerable to their questions. I want to know, I want to know who did this and why. People are accountable to me and the media The media goes after that with a vengeance. Within five or ten minutes, the CNN broadcast was asking the question, if there were two separate incidences separated by over two hours, why wasn't the administration, why weren't the the police more actively involved? Whose head is going to roll because of this? That's what the world wants to do. That's what they're all about. Blame game. Always wanting to blame someone else. And because they don't want to blame the very killer himself, they want to say it's society's fault. It's the psychological age in which we live. This man had obviously been hurt and we are to blame. And if you watched what he sent in those intervening hours to NBC, and if you watched any of those video clips... He, the killer, claiming himself even to be Jesus Christ, claiming to have been himself crucified and mistreated and hurt, is just another way, even for that one individual who did all the carnage, to blame somebody else but himself. There are multitudes of passages from the Word of God, which begged to differ. God in His providence is in sovereign control of the universe. And when something like this happens, just like that tower that fell in Siloam in Jesus' own day and 18 people were killed, and in essence, even the very Jews of Jesus' day said, why? Why did this happen? Who's to blame? Is it because those people on whom that tower fell were greater sinners? Jesus' response, unless you repent, 
you likewise will perish. Do you know one of the lessons, if not the most important lesson in what happened on that Blacksburg campus is this. For every student who was not shot to death, the message of Jesus Christ still rings true. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And the message for godly churches and evangelical Christians and those pastors and Christian workers who are going to be working with those who are left, they have the privilege and the honor, no doubt, in, in this particular opportunity to lead people to that very repentance. God in His providence, even in the massacre of some, might very well be the salvation of others. That's a good God we're talking about. That's a good God we're talking about. You say, but why doesn't He allow everybody to live and everybody to repent? It's not His will. It's not His plan. And there are people who would refuse, no matter what grace, no matter what mercy, no matter what rain or sun would be given to them to water their crops and to bring them to a place of blessing, to bring them to a place of seeing this good God and seeing this God of mercy, and they would continue to shake their fist in the face of this holy God and still say, I want nothing from you. Away from me. And God, the God of providence, if He so chooses at some point to say, because you have willed it so, this is what you will have. Make no mistake about it. This killer, anyone else who may have been involved with him, anyone else who, do, who does dastardly deeds in the future, whether personally or in a corporate rampage like that, will be judged. Make no mistake about it. But those who are left behind, who as yet have not repented of their sins, have a major message that has been sent to them. And that is, if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. Anybody sitting in this room today, if you are not living currently under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there is one overarching message that should be uppermost in all of your minds as you saw it on television or heard about it and as you have been thinking about it, and that is this, I am still alive. And I must repent. I must turn. I must love Jesus Christ. I must fall onto His mercy that I wasn't one of those. I must ask Him for grace. I must see that God is a God who has continued to give me breath while taking it away from someone else. That, for me, is mercy. And I must turn and come to Christ. I must follow Him. Jesus Christ, talking about the ultimate in God's providence, allowed His own sinless Son to die on a wretched tree, cursed for the sake of people who would repent. Are you in that number? I want you to bow your heads with me. And I want you to ask yourself this question. 
have I repented of my sin? Have I repented of my sin? The Lord in His providence is bringing everyone, including those who are directly involved, those indirectly involved, those in our country, much more indirectly involved, much of the world who has seen these things in picture. The question is the same. Will I repent of my sin? There were no doubt some of those who perished who immediately upon perishing in this life went straight to the arms of Jesus because they had repented and they were living in a God-honoring way. And God was pleased to bring them to Himself. And they are not to be pitied they are currently rejoicing. And even though their families are saddened like any family would, if their family knows Christ, they're rejoicing that their loved one is with Jesus. And for those who did not know the Lord, the moment they perished, they were in eternal perdition paying for the sins of their life forever. Oh Lord, I pray for the families of these who were unbelieving and who perished. They still themselves have an opportunity to repent. Lord, I pray for other students on that campus who were able to escape with their life that they would repent and that they would believe in Jesus and that these outreaches which are designed in your gracious providence to be brought to them, a spoken word, a piece of Christian literature, a gospel tract, a Bible, by some means they will be looking not within, but looking to You as their only hope of deliverance. Lord, I pray that You would bring just those to whom You would sovereignly will the sweet message of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray for these outreaches that You would bring people the answers to the prayers of many for revival and spiritual awakening. And Lord, if other events are to occur in our world by Your providence, whether they be on college or university campuses or the World Trade Center or whatever it may be and by whatever means You allow men and women to bring it, that it all would redound to your glory because people still have time to repent. 
And Lord, if we know that angels are rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents, we pray that there would be great rejoicing for that which is so sweet to come out of that campus from that which has been so bitter. Bring people to Yourself, Lord. And bring people here today to Yourself. I pray for especially young people here who might assume that they have their whole life to live and themselves may go to school or may be in a situation in which their life is cut short from them. Or like a mother who is dead at 35 and who leaves three precious babies behind, but who loved you and is now in your wonderful presence. Oh, Lord, I pray for people here to turn from their sin and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He died and that He was buried and that He was raised again so that as Lord, He would command everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in Him as the resurrected Lord Jesus. Lord, if You would have believers here who, like myself, are convicted that we do not affirm Your providence nearly enough, And even if we do not understand all that You're doing, Sovereign Lord, we affirm that You are in providential control of all things. And may You bring us next week to a fuller biblical understanding of this providence so that we might worship and glorify You rightly, fittingly, especially when we see in our world such tragedy to uphold who You really are and not live a caricature because we don't really affirm what Your Word teaches about You. Thank You for challenging us today and bring us back next Lord's Day so that we might affirm the hidden hand of providence. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.